right, it is good to be back with you for our summer sermon series. Say that ten times fast. Uh, this summer we're focusing on the gathering of God's people and why we do what we do when we gather. This is, we put a lot of effort into making sure that we have a gathering every week and over the last two years, that effort has been, you know, we've had to been, be very creative. And the question is, why is that so important? Last week, we talked about the fact that we gather and, we, and, and the reason why we gather. We talked about the normal reasons that we give, which are, you know, we're edified, we're encouraged, we're built up. We receive something when we come to church that uh, equips us for the rest of the week. We also talked about the other reason we give for gathering is to worship God, to take a moment to praise him, to give attention and glory to him and recognize who he is. And both of those are good and important parts of, why we, of what we do when we gather. But they don't actually explain why we gather because we don't have to gather to do them. We can do them without gathering. So the question is, why do we gather? And what, we've, what I argued last week from Scripture is that we gather to do work. That there are, we come not just to watch or to receive, but to do something as a congregation that changes things. And so what we're doing now is we're going to go through the order of service and talk about a sermon on each item and talk about what we are doing in those times and why we do these things every week. Now, if you caught it, you may have noticed that I was not actually planning on preaching on the call to worship. Thursday afternoon, I had everything up online to preach about singing, I was, which is normally, I, my sermons are usually done Thursday, right? But as I was putting things online, it was actually when I prepared for the call to, when I chose the verse for the call to worship, I realized we need to talk about worship because singing and worship are not the same thing. Singing and worship are not the same thing. So if we talk about singing... We're missing the conversation about worship. So Friday, I came in and wrote a new sermon to talk about the call to worship. So that may surprise you to hear that there's a difference between singing and worship. After all, worship teams sing. Worship leaders lead the singing. When we say worship, we typically mean singing. So let me ask you, how many times does the New Testament use the word worship to refer to singing? Zero. Not one single time does the word worship in the New Testament refer to people singing. I say New Testament because I, did not actually, I just didn't have the time to study the Old Testament. It uses the word worship a lot more. I, I would anticipate that the same is true in the Old Testament. Because... The words behind worship, the words that we translate as worship, don't mean anything like singing. Literally, the, word worship, the words for worship mean bowing down to a superior. Which is why most of the time, well, actually, it's probably not most of the time, but outside of like the Psalms, in, in narratives, when it, says, when it uses these words, it normally translates them as bow down. So, for instance, the first time that the Hebrew word for worship, the most common word is used, is in a story where Abraham receives some visitors. 
He doesn't know much about them. He seems to think they're prominent, but he receives them in the dignified way that you're supposed to receive visitors at the time. It says, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Bowed low is the word that we elsewhere translate as worship. He worshiped to the ground. And it's interesting that as you start to notice this, especially in the Old Testament, you will see that the word worship is paired with words that have to do with motions, especially downward motions. So in our call to worship, it said, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. There's a, the, this is verse 6. Verse 1 says, come, let us sing. Verse 6 says, come, let us worship, meaning let us bow down. Let us kneel. It can actually mean like lay flat on your face. So the word worship, it has to do with gestures that, communi- that you use to, to show that someone else is your superior. In fact, um, and so the interesting thing is, the, you know the part of our service that is the closest to this word is the fact that you stand for the call to worship. That physical thing that you do to show respect, you may not even know why or think about why we stand for certain parts of the service. That is the closest thing to the meaning of the word worship. That is the biblically most worshipful thing that we do. Now, this may sound odd to us because we are in um, a place and time that tends to, we have labeled most gestures as religious and, and, or as, as empty, and we tend to not use them in, in churches. You know, there are some, movement, some, some church services that are full of all kinds of motions and, and things like that. We tend not to use them. But the reality is that this is an innate part of who we are. The Bible talks about these physical gestures as showing worship because human beings communicate loyalty, love, and respect through meaningful symbolic actions. We always have and we always will. How do we communicate loyalty to our country? You stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, the National Anthem, the presence of a judge. You put your hand over your heart. Those are meaningful gestures. There's no reason why you should need to put your hand on your chest while you're listening to that song or saying those. It's a a gesture that communicates loyalty, allegiance, right? Biblically, that is a form of worship. Because the Bible also uses, like, people would also worship, they would bow down to their king as their king. The problem was if you bow down to your king as your God. We also use gestures for showing love, right? Whether it's particular gifts that are meaningful on particular days, or whether it's particular gestures that you use. We, so much of the way we communicate who we love is through symbolic gestures, Right? And if, in, if you're married, you probably have your own variation of that language, your own particular things that communicate love without words. Right? Why, when you meet a person for the first time, do you grab their hand and move it up and down? Now, there are historical theories about why that happens and why you use one hand or the other, but we do it because it is a meaningful gesture that communicates respect. We are, and yeah, and some cultures will bow to do the same thing. 
There's no reason why you have to do these things except that they're the language we use to communicate respect because as human beings, we always have and always will communicate loyalty, love, and respect through meaningful, symbolic actions. So, for instance, there is a time when David is a warlord. He's not king yet, but he's got his own army, and one of the, this guy who's near him insults him. And David is hot. David is mad. He is coming after that guy, but this guy's wife comes to David to try and save her husband and their, and their home. And so what does she do to stop him and to get him to listen to her? When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. It immediately, very quickly communicates respect. It's the opposite of the insult, and it gets David to pause and listen to her. So these are, these are things that we do to communicate important feelings, important aspects of our relationships. In Scripture, the word for bow gets translated as worship because it begins to take on a broader meaning. Because throughout Scripture, more and more, God, as, as the, God gives them the law and as their relationship with God deepens, that, that language of gestures becomes broader. There's more things that you can do rather than just bowing. There are more things that we do to show love, loyalty, and respect to God. Until in the New Testament, it's, complete, it's blown wide open to where this word for bowing comes to mean anything that you do, because in anything you do, you can do it in a way that shows love, loyalty, and respect to God. So worship, the word, the way we use it, can refer to anything we do that demonstrates loyalty, love, and respect to God. Singing can be one of the ways we do that. But everything, ultimately everything we do in our service ought to be worshipful. And everything we do outside of the service as individuals ought to be worshipful. It ought always to be clear that we love and respect and are loyal to God. This is what Paul means when he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The proper way to show the right level of loyalty, love, and respect to God is to give him your whole body all the time. Not as a one-time gift, but as a constant gift of everything that you do. Which, of course, is easier said than done, but that is the journey that we are all on together, to be living sacrifices. But that leads us to the next question as we're talking about the gathering. If worship is something we should do all times and everything, then why do we specifically need to do it during our gathering? During the 75-ish minutes, if I'm on time, that we have together during the week, why is it important that we worship? It may seem like an obvious question, but it's worth us investigating. Because there are a lot of distractions that can pull us away from, from worship, even in the gathering. The first reason why we ought to gather, we got to worship when we gather, is because God has called us to worship. Now, I can understand if you were, if you were, uh, didn't realize this, because it really, didn't it look like Casey called us to worship? I mean, it really did look like Casey called us to worship. It sounded like Casey. You might even have thought that I called us to worship as the senior minister or something like that. But whose words called us to worship? They were God's words. God is the one who calls us together. In fact, that's what makes us the church. 
the word for church, it means called people. It refers to the people who are called to gather. And we're called by God. And so Peter, we read this verse last week from Peter describing this uh, this calling of God, or no, I'm sorry, this, yes, we did read this one. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. We are called by God out of darkness into light, and we are called to praise him. This is our mission. This is, in some ways, what makes us a church is that we are the ones that God has called us to assemble and to worship him. Now, the second reason why we ought to worship God when we gather is because of something we talked about last week. When God's people gather in his name, who has promised to show up? Jesus. What is the proper thing to do when you're in the presence of God? Scripture teaches us that worship is the proper response to being in the presence of God. You stand when a judge enters the room, right? As a gesture of respect for the power that the judge represents. When we gather in the presence of God, it only makes sense that we would worship him. After all, this is demonstrated for us over and over again in Scripture. At the burning, when Moses encounters the burning bush, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Why did God tell him to take off his sandals? Were they dirty? Well, probably, but they're still outside, so the ground is dirty too. Taking off his sandals is a gesture of respect and a recognition of God's presence. That's, pro- that's basically how God tells Moses that it's God there because he needs to take off his sandals in his presence. Later on, when Joshua is about to attack Jericho, it says Joshua was near Jericho. He looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? In the ancient world, messengers were treated with the respect of the person who sent them. And so for Joshua to be in the presence of the messenger of God is to be in the presence of God. And what does he do? Hits the ground. When Jesus comes up to a group of fishermen who have been fishing all night and caught nothing, he tells them to go out one more time and throw out their nets. He's telling these professional fishermen how to fish. And Peter says, it's not going to work, but I'll try it. And they go out, and they catch a massive haul of fish. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. He realized that he was in the presence of someone special. And so he made a gesture to communicate his respect for Jesus. So if we truly believe in God's word that when we gather together, he is present, we shouldn't be able to keep from singing, from worshiping, from wanting to show our love for him. 
Now, of course, as human beings, as physical beings who are constantly pulled into a materialist worldview, we, it's hard for us to maintain that mindset, which is why we come together and we call each other to worship and we remind each other that God is present. Now, I told you that, that God calls us to worship, and that begs the question, why is it so important that we do worship? Sometimes you'll hear uh, people who, don't, who uh, oppose Christianity say, man, your God sure sounds needy, that he needs people to constantly be complimenting him and, and all that. And, and they'll criticize this idea of worship. The fact is, God doesn't need our worship. Right? He says that many times in Scripture. He doesn't need us to tell him who he is. So why is it so important that we worship? Well, we should start by observing that false worship is the main threat to God's good design. When Paul tells us how humanity went wrong in the book of Romans, here's what he says. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Let's pause there. Sorry, did I go fast? It's false worship is the main threat to God's good design. So as we look at this first part of the verse, they stopped glorifying God and it caused their thinking to become futile and their hearts became foolish. Why? Because it is a fact that God is what our worship says he is. He is worthy of our worship, right? That is not an opinion, Right? We may have varying opinions of different celebrities or different politicians or different people, and some people think they're great. Some people think he's the best actor in the world, and some people think he only plays one character and can never get the accents. Right? Like we have different opinions. But the fact, God being worthy of worship is a fact. And if you don't realize that, you are disconnected from the truth. Your thinking becomes futile because... It's, it is a fact that God is worthy of our worship. So as we fail to worship God, it deludes our thinking. You know, you might as well start believing that oxygen is poisonous and try holding your breath all the time. So I don't know, that was a weird example. But the point is, it's just a fact of reality. And as we get away from that, we get detached from reality. And as we stop to worship God, human beings worship. We do. We always worship. We always will, every one of us. And so we find someone or something else to worship. So although they claimed to be wise, they became foolish. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Thankfully, we don't do this anymore, right? We don't worship images we don't worship things. We don't worship anything other than God, right? We don't show loyalty, the loyalty, love, and respect that belongs to God to anyone or anything else, right? Of course we do, and that's dangerous. That's destructive. That is what leads humanity down the wrong path. And in fact, in Revelation, when evil makes the final play, their final bid, the dragon calls forth a beast. And what is the point of the beast? All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. The key to getting humanity on the wrong track is to get them to worship the wrong things. Now, we as God's people are called 
by him, for whatever reason, he has chosen to use us as part of his plan to restore his good design to this world. And if false worship destroys God's good design, then what do we need to do? We need to restore proper worship. We need to truly worship. So true worship is the central mission of God's church. In order for us as individuals to be restored to God's truth, we need to worship Him. And for us as a congregation to stand for God's truth, we need to be a worshiping people. Without worship, you haven't actually, you haven't actually gotten to the truth. If, if you consider the truth to just be a list of facts about God and not your response to those facts, that, that's not actually a sufficient truth. A creed is never enough truth. You can believe facts about God and not consider him worthy of your obedience, your love, or your, or your respect. The truth is not just who God is, but it's what he's worth. And so Peter describes the mission of the church that way. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are being built into the temple and the priesthood. We are being built into the place, the gathering, where God is truly worshipped. Through Jesus, the author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And in the book of Revelation, when we hear about evil's play to get humanity off track, who are the people that God ultimately vindicates? What do you think defines the people that God vindicates in the book of Revelation? I saw thrones on which had been seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about God and because of the word of God. Telling the truth about God. That's, that's what worship is. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, there's all different opinions about what the thousand years mean. We don't need to get into that. The point is that the people that God is vindicating here are the people who worshipped him and refused to worship the beast. That is the most important thing for how they navigate the tribulations of the, that the book of Revelation describes is that they worship God and they don't worship the beast. They communicate love, loyalty, respect to God and not the beast. So that is what we are called to do and to be. Do you know that the word orthodox does not actually mean... Have you heard the word orthodox? We usually use it to mean the people who are right. Orthodox does not mean right belief. It means right worship. The doxology is a worship song. Orthodox, the call to be orthodox is to be those who worship rightly. That is our calling as the church. Now, as we are going through this series, we're focusing on what do, what do we do when we worship? How are things different because we have worshipped? What actually changes? The first thing that happens is that worship makes our loyalty, love, and respect for God real. The tree falls in the forest and no one hears it. Does it make a sound? If I feel loyal to God, but I never do anything about it, am I really loyal? 
We sometimes use this logic that God knows what's in my heart, so he doesn't need to see me do anything about it. But that comes from the idea that, that my feelings are all that make up love, loyalty, and respect. Let me ask you, if you're, if you're married, um, how do you know, do you know what your spouse is feeling all the time? You have an accurate perception of what your spouse feels all the time. How do you find out what they're feeling by what they do? And what would you say is, a, is stronger? A, how, how would you rate the strength of a feeling that is never expressed? Would you consider that a very strong feeling? The truth is that one thing that loyalty, love, and respect have in common is that none of them, they are not just feelings. You don't just feel loyal, you are loyal. If you feel loyal to someone, but you don't show up when it, that, Peter felt loyal. He told God, Jesus that he would be with him to the end, but he didn't show up when it counted. So one of the things that happens when we worship is our feelings, like we actually realize our worship in time and space. It beca- our worship becomes real because it's been done. You can see it. You can hear it. So that's one of the, the values of coming to worship is to say, I have worshipped. I have loved, respected, and obeyed God. Not that doing it on, for 75 minutes on a Sunday morning is enough, but that's the value of doing it as a body is that we've made it real. Another thing that worship does is worship teaches us to love and obey God. Sometimes we tend to think, a lot of times we tend to think of the Christian life as like classes that you learn. Like you learn, you learn scripture, you learn the Christian life like you would learn a subject like geometry. You know, I learned the facts, I know how it works, so I have learned it. But being a Christian, following God is not something you learn like Geometry, at least the way we think you learn geometry, it's actually the way you learn a musical instrument or the way you build muscle or lose weight. It's through patterns, through doing it repeatedly, through getting... Like if you want to play an instrument well, you can't just learn how it works. You actually have to build the muscle memory, right? You have to sit down and spend hours learning the notes. I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm a trumpet player. Um, learning the notes, learning the, like you have to do scales over and over again until they're just in your fingers so that you do the right scales. Like Casey will testify, I haven't played music like in public pretty much since college on trumpet, but I still, when I'm holding her hand, she'll feel my fingers doing scales because that's how you learn music. Or if you want to lose weight, you don't go for a run and say, okay, I did my exercise, right? You have to get the benefits of repeated of repeatedly doing that. It has to get into your body. It has to shape your muscles. It has to, to, that's how your body acquires things. And as we become worshipful people, we learn that not just by taking a class on, on the, you know, the attributes of God to find out, wow, he's pretty amazing, but by regularly, repeatedly gathering to worship. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 12. Remember he said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That renewal of the mind, that's not taking a class. That's not learning a subject. That is being ingrained with patterns, being ingrained with words, the words that we say to each other, the things that we do, the things that we say about who God is. Even the physical motions, the standing, all those kinds of things, they train us to love, respect, and be loyal to God. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, worship proclaims the truth to a fallen world. Here's another thing where where it's easy for us to get mistaken. You may think that it is my job to proclaim the truth during our gatherings. I would say that me up here giving the sermon is the secondary way that the truth is proclaimed through this church at this time. The most important way that it is communicated is through what we do. What we proclaim, the fact that you are here, the fact that we gather together, the things that we do, the fact that it is worth it to all of you to be here, That communicates the gospel. And in fact, that was the most powerful tool that the early church had in the Roman Empire. It's also what got them in the most trouble. Paul, as he's talking to the Corinthians about how they should navigate this issue of uh, uh, most of the food sold in the food markets had been sacrificed to idols, most of the meat. So they're navigating how to deal with this. And Paul is addressing that topic when he says, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So he starts out by saying, this is what we all know. And he's probably, what he's probably doing here is quoting something that they say in church. He says, we know that there are many people claim, people claim there are many gods out there, and there are many people, most prominently Caesar, who are claiming to be Lord. And we get all worried about the, and you, you may get all worried about the food sacrifice to idols, but we know there is no other God. Those gods are not real, and there are no other lords. So, which, so on the one hand, he's saying you don't actually need to worry about those sacrifices. They haven't actually been sacrificed to gods. They're not like tainted because of that, right? Because those gods aren't real. And the, the, words, the reason why I say this is almost certainly from something they use in their worship service is because he's retelling the Jewish prayer, the Shema, that they would say every day. They would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's how it's phrased in English. In Hebrew, it could just as easily be said, Our Lord God is one God. He's, or, or we have one Lord God. Paul takes that and says, we have one, one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. This is probably something they say in their worship service. They are used to these words, and he's simply reminding them of what they've proclaimed in their weekly gatherings. But it's interesting, because he first, he tells them they're not real gods. But secondly, he tells them, but be careful, because you don't want to communicate the wrong thing about gods to people. He basically tells them, if, if, they're, if you're around people who are, who are superstitious about gods, don't eat the meat, because they'll think you're serving the gods. Because communicating who God is, is what's most important. But this is a hugely important, hugely controversial, hugely political statement to make. This is 
what got the, the Christians in trouble. Because when they arrested Christians, the test was, who's your Lord? There's a famous story, a, a document from the early church about the martyrdom of Polycarp. This is a, an early church bishop uh, who knew the Apostle John, like he overlapped with the writer of the Gospel of John just barely. And they arrested him, and they brought him into town, and he was on a, a, a chariot with the town leaders. And they endeavored to persuade him, saying, what harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord, and in sacrificing with other ceremonies observed on such occasions, and so to make sure of safety? What's the harm? Just say Caesar's Lord instead of Jesus, make a sacrifice, and then go on your way and worship God on your own however you want, but just make, do this public thing to show that you, you know that Caesar's really in charge. And he refuses. When they put him in the, their arena and, face, and he faces the lions, he says, 86 years I have served him and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme, blaspheme my king and savior? The early church was persecuted for who they worshipped and who they refused to worship. They worshipped one God and one Lord and they refused to worship anyone or anything else as God or Lord. And countless Christians died for that, and countless people became Christians from witnessing that. So we very powerfully proclaim the gospel by choosing to worship God. So here's what I want you to take home with you this week, and bring back with you next week. First of all, remember that who and what we worship is critically important. Your actions, your character, your identity will all follow your worship. And remember that worship is not simply the songs that you sing or even the words that you say. It is all the, gest- all the things that you do to communicate who you love, respect, and are loyal to. That means it's possible to say that you're loyal to and respect and love God, but not actually act that out. Or to, to worship him on one day and worship others on other days. And because of that possibility, the most important mission we have as people and as a church is to worship God alone. That is how we proclaim the gospel. If we get every single member, every single person who lives in the city limits of Turner into this church, but we bring them into a church that doesn't worship God alone, we're not actually building the kingdom. We're disrupting the kingdom. We're deceiving if we don't teach people to worship God alone. I'm going to talk about something that I have been terrified to talk about with you as long as I've been here. But this is the most appropriate time for me to explain to you what's in my heart and in my mind as I've made a very difficult decision uh, for how we worship in this church. You may notice that we do not have a flag in our sanctuary. We bring it out on certain occasions, certain holidays, funerals, things like that but we don't use it during our worship service. I'm not unpatriotic. I have no problem with flags in any other setting. 
But to me, it is so important that we send a crystal clear signal of who and what we worship that we have no other objects of worship in this place. Biblically, what we do with the flag is worship. Now, as long as we are, we are acknowledging it as what it is, our country as what it is, not as God, but our country, that's the same thing that the Israelites did with their kings. There is an appropriate level to show love, loyalty, and respect to your nation, to your leaders. That's fine. I'm not telling anyone that anything you do with the flag is, is wrong. But what I'm telling you is that in this place, it is absolutely critical to me, especially in the atmosphere that we're in, to make sure everyone knows we are here to worship God. And I want no distractions from that. Now, you don't have to agree with me on that decision. But I want you to know where it comes from. It doesn't come from a political intent. It doesn't come from a partisan intent. It comes from me wanting to do everything I can to make our worship as clear and as pure as it can be. That's what we're called to do. Now, I don't want you to hear from me that this is putting pressure on us, that we have to get everything right or God's going to hate our worship and we're ruining things, okay? Because sometimes we get that pressure. When we say, like, there's a biblical model for worship, then it makes it like, like you can either do it well enough or terrible. Like, there's, there, you can either be okay or fail, and it just puts all this pressure on our worship. So I want to end with this. God is not up there going, okay, you either get a pass uh, or if you do the wrong things, this is horrible. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this very well. But what, here's, here's why I'm trying to get across. There is such immense beauty and power in worshiping God. And when we do it right, it has such incredible power that our faithful worship can change the world. It is a joy to worship God. And it's... Sometimes, sometimes if you have that feeling like, well, we better not get it wrong, you'd almost rather not. Like, if you ever have a person who only will interpret what you do negatively, and you're like, well, I just don't want to talk to them at all for fear of offending them. That's not, that's not what God is like. I don't want you to think that about God. Like, we don't, I don't want to go to worship because I might make it, I might mess it up, and we might do it wrong, or my heart might be in the wrong place. I want us to eagerly desire worship because of the power that it has because of the beauty that it has, because it is our worship of God that he has used to transform the world for the past 2,000 years. You may notice the Roman Empire hasn't been around for a while, and the church is still here. And so no matter what may be going on in our world and what fears we may have and how powerless we may feel to change things that go, go on in the world, when we gather and we worship God faithfully and truthfully, we are doing something, something that God uses to change the world. Amen? I'm going to ask the praise team to come up and uh, ask Jack to come down um, in front here because I'm going to be playing. As we finish the sermon I want to ask you to consider what God is calling you to do. We believe that every time the gospel is preached, there is a chance for us to respond. So what is God putting on your heart? Maybe you have some false worship that needs to be confessed. Maybe you have some, some, true, some opportunities to truly worship that you need to take up. Maybe God is putting something on your heart that I can't even anticipate. If he's putting on your heart to give your life to him for the first time, today is the day to do that. 
So we encourage you, whether you're here in the sanctuary, you can come down and talk to Pastor Jack during this final song. You can talk to one of the ministers after church. If you're online, please get a hold of us or talk to a Christian that you trust. Maybe you want to learn the patterns of true worship. Maybe you want to uh, work with your brothers and sisters to learn true worship and to get it into your bones and your muscle memory and to learn those scales. That's what our small groups and our classes are for. If you want to sign up for one of those, you can mark it on the connection card. And finally, if you want to be part of a family that wants to worship God truthfully in Turner and see it transformed by the worship of the true God, that is who this congregation is seeking to be. And we'd love for you to join the congregation. Uh, you, can, uh, you can check the box for the Connect class. And that's the first step where we get together and have some food and talk about who this church is and, and what we do. So we encourage you to consider one of those decisions as we stand and sing our final song.